you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 40 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. And myself, Mark Tottenham, Barrister and editor of Decisis.ie. Mark, we're back. There was a Mm. little hiatus. You always told me that law was the new rock and roll, Mm. but now I know for a fact that it actually is. Yeah. Will you tell them where we were last weekend? We recorded this week's and next week's interview at the Electric Picnic, where the crowds decided that rather than watching Billie Eilish or the Saw Doctors or any of these kind of people... Who who had the bigger crowd in their tent? Us or the Wolf Tones? Yeah, I I, 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 I wasn't counting. (laughs) I think, you know, I think we nearly pushed them, you know, we nearly pushed them. Um, uh, Up the fifth court, I think was what they were saying. Absolutely, that was was it. Um, And uh, no, look, it was absolutely fantastic. Mm. We had, our guest was Rory Carroll, Mm. who is the Ireland correspondent of The Guardian and who has written a spectacular book. I think we both agree on that. Killing Thatcher, which is the story of the Brighton bombing 1984, Mm. October 1984, and the story of Patrick McGee. You're a big fan of of the police investigation. I was more into the McGee story, but you like the police investigation. Yeah, I mean, I think what was really interesting there was just the the the, the sort of the detail of the, the basically the chase, the 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 uh, the IRA cell that was being tailed, and how they went about sort of following them from yeah, and 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 the whole background to do with the forensics. It, it's a it's a really well researched story. It's it's the, the level that you know I I, I can't remember reading something at that. Quality it's before. absolutely ma- magnificent mm. and I mean he was a wonderful guest and yeah. we, we did an hour long you know mm. interview and we're breaking it up into two uh, I know our producer Connell was saying oh, I should take out the little bit at the start when you're talking to the crowd but we said no leave it in because it's very different normally we're very mm. polished in the studio yeah. Mark and this was kind of from the stage you know yeah. Yeah. we were unleashing our, our Billy Idol or whatever it was you know our, our inner fifth course yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay so anyway before we proceed to that let's take a look at three cases from or two cases I think from uh, Decisis that you've Identified. The first concerns the Hague Convention uh, and the wrongful removal of children from their country of habitual residence. This is the case of E. Darina I.F. versus J.G. It's a decision of Ms. Justice Mary Rose Geraghty. A child was brought to Ireland by her mother from Ukraine without the consent of the child's father. An application was made under the Hague Convention for her return. And despite the fact that there's a war on, the court said that the child had to be returned. Yeah, so it's, uh, well, as you said, I mean, that, that, that's the, the nub of it. Clearly, the family were, were separated. The father, as far as one can tell from the judgment, obviously, it's anonymized, but the father appears to have another family or at least a new partner. And, and the mother removed the child from Ukraine to Ireland. And of course, you know, one of the issues that arises in Hague Convention applications when the court is asked to return the child to the country of habitual residence is whether is whether it's in the best interest of the child. And you might, and naturally they said, well, look, there's a war on in the Ukraine. Should, 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 um, should this child go back? And basically the, the, the court looked at the whole situation in Ukraine and I think that what, uh, what Ms. Justice Garrity said was while there is a real risk of serious harm to the respondent and to Darina in Ukraine as there is a war ongoing, the evidence does not establish a grave risk of harm if she is returned to her home city given the current statistics 
and even taking into account the probability of even greater civilian casualties in the immediate future. The psychological health is better served by returning Darina forthwith to her home in Ukraine. Wow, okay. Big call to make for the yes. judge in this case. I horrible mean, decisions all, for anybody yeah, to make. Horrible yeah, decisions. Yeah, yeah. And judges are very sensitive, but yeah. I think Mary Rose Geerty is a particularly sensitive judge, I would have thought. So she would have weighed everything up uh, in mm. coming to her conclusion. Okay, second case today. And this concerns a, a recent very significant constitutional decision by the Supreme Court. It's the case of CW versus the Minister for Justice. The leading judgment was given by the Chief Justice Donald O'Donnell. Now this is kind of upsetting territory I think we're entering into. Certainly. The Supreme Court was asked to rule on the constitutionality of a statute arising from a conviction for defilement, which is a sexual act with a child under the age of 17. The accused sought to raise the defence of reasonable mistake as to the age of the complainant, and it brought into question the constitutionality of Section 3.5 of the Criminal Law Sexual Sexual Offences Act 2006, which was substituted, I should be accurate here, substituted by Section 17 of the Criminal Law Sexual Offences Act 2070. Look, serious business here. Yeah, I mean, this this has been a, a, an issue. I mean, I think the issue of mistake as to age was raised in cases as far back as um, 1875 that were cited in this judgment. So it's it's obviously, it's it's not it's not a new issue. But in, the, in without going necessarily into the facts of this case, the question arises, if, say, a 16-year-old girl and a 19-year-old man are in a relationship. So there's a three-year age gap between them. She is below the 17-year age of consent. Even if she willingly has sex with or engages in a sexual act with a 19-year-old man, he is guilty of an offence. And as they point out, it's a serious criminal offence. The, the, um, it, it's, there's a potential seven-year term of imprisonment. So if you are taking the 19-year-old and he says, well, actually, I thought she was 17 years old, the statute says that he needs to prove that on the balance of probabilities. And so that was the challenge in this case, that the the offender, the, the, the sorry, the, the accused in this case, not the offender, um, had raised the defence of, re, of, of reasonable mistake as to age. But the judge obviously had to tell the jury that he had to prove that on the balance of probabilities. And so this was challenged in the High Court. And as Justice Siobhan Stack said, no, that offends the the due process provision that that because the age of the offender is central to this particular offence that it is that it is un, unjust it's disproportionate to say it has to be proved on the balance of probabilities the normal defence is to raise a reasonable doubt and so she held that that specific portion of the section okay um, was unconstitutional but everything else still stands um <clears throat> so so it 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 specifically it's not it's not where somebody you people often talk about statutory rape. So did she rape. strike so, down the legislation then as a result of that own, using only, her inherent own, jurisdiction in the high court? Yes, in the, in the high court she struck it down and it was appealed to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court upheld that decision. So it's yes. just the specific it's section three five which has been struck down, but the rest of the section still stands. So it's about the balance of probability exactly. And instead, it's the the criminal standard, the standard criminal burden, which is beyond exactly. a reasonable doubt. And and the point one one of the many points that was made was because these days that that nobody considers considers it immoral for two consenting adults to engage in a sexual act. You know that there was a time when you know unmarried people weren't supposed to do that kind of thing. But these days, um, it's considered an area of private life that shouldn't be interfered with. So you move from a stage where a boy or girl who is 16 years and 11 months, if, if they willingly have sex with an older person, it's a serious criminal offence. Whereas once they pass their 17th birthday, it's something that the, the okay. law doesn't interfere with. 
All right, well, very well explained there, Mark. Okay, we're back with part one of our interview with Rory Carroll at the Electric Picnic. Silence in the fifth court. Hi, everybody. Hello, thank you for coming in. This is a recording as well as an interview. Myself and Mark Tottenham, we're barristers and we present a legal podcast called The Fifth Court. So we generally have interviews with various kind of legal personalities and we try and tease out the legal issues of the day and hopefully we do it in a way that's sort of accessible for people. I know I have a colleague there from the Law Library over there, the distinguished looking man in row three. But that's what it's all about. And we were invited to come down here today just to talk and to record one of our programmes and maybe two programmes. We might get a lengthy interview and convert it into two programmes. So we're delighted and we're very grateful for the invitation. So for the purposes of today, we invited Mr. Rory Carroll along. So Rory is the author of this book, Killing Thatcher, which has been a publishing sensation this year. Nothing less than that. It's been absolutely fantastic. It's an incredible book. In my opinion, it's book of the year. And that's why we're thrilled and honoured that Rory is here doing an interview with us. The story itself is magnificent, and we will focus on the story. But there are some legal aspects. So if we get a little bit train spotting on the legal issues, you can indulge us. Let us ask those questions. And I'm going to hand you now over to my colleague, Mark, who's going to introduce Rory. And let's commence, will we? We'll give it a lash. Absolutely. Okay. Thanks to everybody. Thanks everybody for coming. So Rory Carroll, who is our guest today, is well known to a number of people. He is primarily known as a war reporter, having covered, I have a list here, the Balkans, Yemen, Liberia, Iraq, which we'll come back to in a minute, Latin America, including Peru, Mexico, Venezuela, and Haiti, and then the lesser known war zones of the West Coast of the United States, isn't that right? And then, since 2019, has been the Ireland correspondent of The Guardian. In fact, you've worked for The Guardian in most of those places, isn't that right? Yes, that's right. Can you hear me? Um, yeah, firstly, welcome everybody. Thanks so much for turning up, especially there's lots of rival attractions here. We're aware of that. And thank you, um, Mark and Peter, for the invitation. I'm delighted to be at my first electric picnic. It's amazing. I mean, I had no idea what to expect, but this is amazing. Can we get somebody to turn off the music in the background? Would that be possible? <laughs> But yes, I've been with The Guardian for almost my entire career at this point, for like 24 years, starting in London and then been on the foreign circuit, kind of back-to-back postings, until a few years ago, they sent me back here into Ireland. So it's kind of been a, a homecoming, and, you know, after being away for two decades. Okay, so we wanted primarily, obviously, to talk about your book, Killing Thatcher, which I think it's fair to say is more line of duty than rumpole, isn't that right? It's, you know, it's very much kind of police procedure, amazing sort of quite an exciting book about the route to which the various police forces took to, to track down the, the Brighton bomber and the gang that he was working with. But um, I wanted to start by asking you, the first time certainly that I was aware of you was in 2005 when you were working in Iraq and there had already been some quite high profile abductions and in fact murders. And then I heard that an Irish, a young Irish journalist had been abducted, which was yourself. And obviously the the news did not sound good, and very fortunately, a few days later, you were released. But what I was wondering in terms of writing about Northern Ireland, a lot of people have had that experience, whether the hooded men, the people picked up by the IRA, by loyalist paramilitaries. Do you think that informs your writing on, on the conflict? To some extent, yes, in that I'm much more aware of the impact on, it's not just the individual, but the, the family, and often the impact on them might actually be worse. And also just 
you know, certain things. And I was very lucky. I mean, the, the short version is I was abducted. It was very unpleasant. But then I was released unharmed after just a few days. Um, I didn't know it was going to be just a few days and the, what the outcome would be, nor did my family. And so basically I was, I was fine. And so I was super lucky. And to this day, I, whenever I'm chatting to a, a diplomats or various spook types, I mean, the amount of people who claim to have been the author of my liberation you know, I've got a list now of about, you know, 200 people who claim that they were the, the crucial people who spoke to the right militia group and bragged dad and got me out. But, but I, I mean... Can I, just, can I just jump in? Just to get a bit more about that, Rory. You know, like, how, how were you kidnapped? Or why were you kidnapped? What were you doing at the time? And, and how did it happen? It, it's kind of... It, it, it's, I was, it's very it, interesting. It was the opening day of Saddam Hussein's trial. And I went to a kind of a slum area of Baghdad to interview a family that had someone executed by the Saddam regime. And so the idea was to watch the trial with them and report on their reactions. But at that time, there's a militia group that controlled that zone and that they had a grievance against the British military who'd arrested some of their mates in Basra, another city in, ba- in Iraq. And so they were looking for, not payback, leverage. And so they see, oh, there's, you know, I worked for the Guardian, you know, the, the, he'll do, you know. So they, they were waiting for, for me, and they was in a car. So. But, but you, you were taken away in the boot of a car. I mean... Yes, right? well, I was taken away. I mean, they, 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 there was shots. They, they cut us off, and um, I was in a, traveling in a car, and they stopped us, um, and I was kind of bundled out. Fortunately, my Iraqi colleagues, staff that were with me, were left shaken but unharmed, and I was taken away car i was stripped naked by the side of the road it's funny it's kind of like goats foraging and you know it's very weird kind of surreal scenes but anyway and then given these kind of weird baggy trousers and taken off to a, a place where i was held and it's actually when i was being released a few days later i was then i was put in the boot of a car um and then i emerged in the other side of the city I, you know at night time was you know moonlight and into the care of um, Ahmad Chalabi, who was the, uh, then this Iraqi power broker. And I mean, I could dive into the weeds of this, but that, that, was, that was the story. But on a personal level, I mean, it must have been terrifying. How was it? Uh, of course, absolutely. Yes, of yeah. course. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's the dread moment. I mean, I've yeah. been, in, I mean, in, in, been in Baghdad for nine months at that point. And all of the journalists, all my friends, we would all discuss the possibility that this could happen because... It was an occupational hazard. I mean, there were, you know, people were being kidnapped all the time. And often their fates were horrendous. And actually, just a week earlier, I'd spent those nine months doing my best to not look at beheading videos because just for obvious reasons, they're so upsetting. But I had to do a story about one. So I had to, I had to watch beheading videos and just a week earlier. And so then, yeah, when you're, suddenly it happens to you, you think, you know, at first there's a certain, an air of unreality to it. You're thinking, uh, but then you realize it is real. And, wow. you know, so, yeah, it was, it was awful. Yes, okay. I mean, obviously, in Ireland we have, you know, the Brian Keenan story, for example, and people who were kidnapped in the Lebanon in the 1980s, etc., and detained for five years. Was he five years? Uh, Brian Keenan, I, I think, think was so. he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, John McCarthy and Terry Waite and stuff like that. So, I mean, high profile, ne- never mind the fear that something, you know, terrible might happen to you. The fact that you would be detained for such a long period of time, it must have been terrifying. Anyway, anyway, thankfully you were released after a short period of time. You, you made your way then to various different locations. Mark has, has listed those. And, and a place you spent a lot of time was Venezuela, I think. And 
You wrote about Hugo Chavez, isn't that correct? Yes, I spent six years in, um, as a Latin America correspondent for The Guardian based in Caracas, Venezuela, and which meant I had a ringside seat to the, the Hugo Chavez show. I mean, he was the, the president of, of Venezuela, an extraordinary ca- character. I mean, he um, left-wing, elected, and a complete showman as well. And, I mean, in the, in, in the West, in Europe, he was largely known as for the insults he would heap upon George Bush. People loved him in the West for that. But living in Venezuela, you could also see just the fact that, you know, the misrule and the fact that the country was unraveling, you know, just the atrophy, the mismanagement. So I ended up writing a book about that called Comandante, which was sort of an attempt to explain in a, in a vivid, colorful way, not that I'm trying to sell the book at this point, but about what was happening there and to kind of capture this extraordinary character of Hugo Chavez. And, and by complete fluke, I mean, the, the timing of public, a book's publication date is planned a year in advance, but it was actually published the two days before he died. Wow, okay. Um, and so that uh, was, yeah, timing. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. And so after, let's say, being Latin American correspondent, was it then that you came back to Ireland? No, I went, the Guardian posted me from Caracas to Los Angeles. So I was there, the title was US West Coast Correspondent which basically meant as a reporter based in L.A., and you can kind of, you know, pop up in different parts of the, of the States covering different stories, and it was fantastic. I mean, it was a great way to... I was there from 2012 for the end of the Obama presidency and for the rise of Donald Trump, and it was a real privilege to be able to, to see that um, and to, be, to, be, to cover it. I mean, I was covering Donald Trump rallies, and I remember one I was... Actually, it wasn't Donald Trump rally. It was Steve Cruz, one of his rivals for the Republican oh, yeah. primaries. And, you know, standing at the back interviewing people about, you know, the, these Republicans. And, so, and they kind of looked at me suspiciously. These people said, well, you're with who? The Guardian? Is that the homosexual Guardian? And I was like, I don't have to think about that. It's like, well, I mean, yes, we have, you know, I have gay colleagues. Um, but what he meant was the San Francisco Bay Area Guardian. Okay. And, you know, it meant that, well, my, I guess my point of that is that, you know, kind of an outsider perspective because you're, you're seen perceived as a Brit. You know, you're working for The Guardian. And initially at that time, The Guardian wasn't that well known in the yes. U.S. And in some ways that was an advantage because you didn't, you know, bring in the baggage of they think, oh, you're, you know, you got to, you're going to bring a particular slant on it. And so anyway, I had a lovely, fantastic six years there. I mean, it's very draining because, you know, your phone can go and it's your boss saying, oh, there's a hurricane in Texas, you know, you got to go. And, you know, that night you find yourself kayaking down the main streets. And, and, and just, Mark, I know you want to come in here, Mark, but just one question, just in terms of being a foreign correspondent, for people who kind of obviously read the copy and read the wonderful articles you write in The Guardian, like, are you kind of heading off on your own to cover these stories? Phone rings, editor says, Rory, there's a story, something has happened in Chicago, something has happened in San Francisco. Do you go off yourself, something has happened in Caracas? Like, is it a solo operation? Are you in company? Do you have a photographer with you? Or what way does it work? It used to be those, the glory days, and I'm going to sound like a real old fart here because and show my age that when I, I was also Africa correspondent back um, 20 years ago, and there it was fantastic because it was largely pre-internet. Well, the internet had, was beginning. I mean, this is like 2000s to 2005, and you could just go off and disappear and you could go to say, I was based in Johannesburg, but I said, I'm going to Congo for two weeks to cover a story. And I would tell my editors, because and the, all the reporters, the correspondents were complicit in this, we would imply that there were no phone coverage in Congo. You know, we'd bring a sat phone, but you know, it probably didn't work. And, and so basically you'd be off unleashed and you could do whatever you wanted for those two weeks. 
the truth was, I mean, Congo, even the most remote eastern parts of the country, loads of phone networks, you know, and you know, SIM cards. You could text but, away. But you could, te- yeah, and you could function, but you didn't want to be on call all the time. And nowadays, it's so different. The job is so transformed with the technology, which on one level is fantastic. It makes it easier, and you can be so much more efficient. But also, it's a complete curse because all the time you're at the, at the beck and call of, you know, of emails and texts. And, you know, if you're, I mean, covering, for example, a mass shooting, I remember in, in Las Vegas, it was an awful story to cover these mass shootings, but what's even more stressful is you're having, you know, you're, you go to one hospital and you're there trying, waiting to speak to the doctor or try to interview a relative, and then your phone goes or a text and it's your editor saying, they've just seen a tweet and it looks like there's a really interesting, better hospital to go to on the other side of Las Vegas because somebody from CBS has got this guy, maybe you could get the same guy. And, you know, so you have to kind of like abandon the interview and then maybe jump in your car and spend 40 minutes driving to another part of the city. And you, so it's kind of this sense of backseat driving of, of editors. Yes. And they're just doing their job because they can do this stuff now. And so I do nostalgically yearn for the, the pre-internet days. Unfortunately, it would be great to cover all of these things, but we did build this interview as... We're here to sell a book. Yeah, to, yeah. We're, to, we're, we're here to sell your book, exactly. And to try and draw this in some way towards the uh, legal affairs area, although obviously we could talk about foreign affairs for several hours. What I'd like to bring you back to is, I think I'm right in saying that the genesis of this book was that you interviewed Patrick McGee, is that right? Yes. And how did that come about? So, for those who've shockingly not read the book, I mean, it's about, it's about the Brighton bombing. In 1984, the IRA planted a bomb in the Grand Hotel in Brighton where Margaret Thatcher and most of her, her cabinet were staying because next door they were having their, their, their party conference. And the bomb almost, I mean, it went off, destroyed the hotel and came very close to wiping out Margaret Thatcher and her government. Patrick McGee is a Belfast provisional, member of the provisional IRA who was convicted of it. And he, about four years ago, five years ago, published a memoir called Where Grieving Begins about his childhood in Belfast, why he joined the IRA, and it's a very interesting book, and he himself is a very thoughtful, cerebral guy for a, a man who planted a bomb in a, in a hotel filled with sleeping civilians. But the book drew a veil on the actual Brighton operation. I mean, and he's very upfront about this. He said, if you're reading, you know, you want to find out what happened, how we did it, I'm not going to tell you in this book. But in reading it and then speaking to him, interviewing him about his book, you know, I was reading around the topic. And at first I assumed this is, well, of course, it's a very familiar topic. Brighton, Thatcher, they missed almost got her the end right and I thought well actually it's so unfamiliar and once I started kind of reading into it in preparation for my interview with Patrick McGee I realized there's tons of stuff I didn't I never knew or if I'd known it I'd forgotten and what really then got me excited as a kind of storyteller I guess was the the sense that there's a great story here that's been untold and you can tell it through basically in the form of a novel by picking a handful of characters, you know, maybe five or six core characters, one of which would be Margaret Thatcher, one would be Patrick McGee, another one, Jerry Adams, and then the police who were involved in the, in the, the hunt. And you can show through, but this would be journalism. I mean, this is all factual, um, but written in the form of a novel where these different people, individuals, each with their own worldviews collide. 
And the story begins with the hunger strikes. You know, why yeah. did the IRA go after her? It was a little bit, it reminded me of the Patrick Graddon Keefe book, Say Nothing, about the Jean McConville affair. You know, the same kind of technique, sort of like a novel, you know, kind of an exciting read. You know, I mean, the chase of the various police forces in your book is actually kind of pulse racing at times. I mean, well, thanks for saying that. I mean, because that's the idea, because you can't assume, you know, you have to earn people's attention. I mean, I can't assume people are going to care about an IRA plot in the 1980s that ultimately failed. I mean, you have to make people care. You have to make them feel invested in, well, in the story, in the people they're reading about, because, you know, layering fact upon fact itself is not enough. And there's enough now known, and I could, it was a mix of journalism and history, and I felt enough time had passed now that police who, were, who did the investigation would not have spoken to me maybe, you know, 20 and certainly even, even 10 years ago because they would have felt a bit too nervous about it. Same with some of the IRA people who were involved in the plot. But now they are, in the case of the IRA, for different motivations. And it felt like a, a good time to, to do this story, maybe the only time, really, that you could do the story justice. Okay. And Rory, can I just bring you back for a second? If I can just say, folks, in terms of... Uh, the book is fascinating because the story is incredible. The story of the Brighton bombing, you know, the bomb planted in the Grand Hotel, and then the story, the aftermath, as Mark has said, in relation to how um, Patrick McGee was tracked down and then was sentenced to 30 years plus in prison, released after the Good Friday Agreement. It's an incredible story. But it's also an incredible book because of the way you've written it, Rory. And I'm throwing bouquets at you here, but you deserve them. It's, it's, it's incredible. The detail you have... I mean, when you talk about the, the Grand Hotel, you describe the waves crashing up on the beach outside. You're, you're creating visual images all the time as you read the book. And I, I thought that was a very powerful technique. But can I bring you back to Patrick McGee and that initial meeting? I mean, Patrick McGee's story, in one way, is the story of the Troubles. I mean, he's a, he was born in Belfast, but he was raised, interestingly, in Norwich. And that was crucial in, in terms of the story and how he was eventually... Uh, identified potentially as the bomber and you might go into that that story there but he returns to Belfast in the late 60s in 69-70 and he gets interested in you know what was emerging at that stage you know post-civil rights the emergence of the IRA provisional IRA and he wants to get involved would you, would you tell us about that how did he get involved and and, and that story at that particular time. Yes, well on one level Patrick McGee was a central casting member of the provisional IRA working class, North Belfast, Catholic. And, but with the twist, which is that at an early age, the family moved to Norwich. And so he grew up in, with an English accent, but he never quite fit in. I mean, he was Paddy in both senses. You know, he's Paddy McGee, but also he was Paddy, you know, I mean, you know, he was, and he, he never felt quite gelled or felt at home in England. And he felt like he was an outsider. In his teens, he fell in with the wrong crowd. He, they broke into shops. And fatefully, this is a spoiler alert, but he got fingerprinted at the age of 15. Um, this was in the 1960s. And that stayed on file. And this is a crucial kind of plot point in, in the book. Um, he was drifting. He was kind of, he was very kind of a bright kid, but he was like, he, he didn't fit in at school and he got into trouble with the law. And so he's looking for his, you know, a place to fit in. And then when the troubles erupted, he went back, and he'd always missed Belfast. Extended family were from there. And he, there he, he was in awe of what the, the embryonic provisional IRA were doing. I mean, they were standing up to the Brits. I mean, you know, standing up against the, the might of the British Army, as they would put it. Um, and, you know, he had to lobby hard to be allowed in. Yes. And initially, the local They initially IRA, were resistant to letting him in, weren't they? Yes, partly because of his accent. I mean, he sounded English. They think, who is this guy? You know, why, you know, is he a spy? And, and as it, as but, it turned but, but out... But also the approach was, when, when you, you did try and join the provisional IRA, 
I mean, you were you were massively dissuaded, weren't you? Wasn't that you know those that were already in the organisation basically pointed out to new recruits they were a taking their life in their hands or b facing life in jail? Wasn't that it? They, yeah, they they tell you when you join, you know, there's kind of going to be two outcomes to this. You joining, it's going to be you know a hole in the ground or a cell. This is ultimately where your journey is going to be, and and yet despite that, <laughs> rather. And correct warning, they were, the IRA were swamped with recruits at that time, in the early 70s. They were spoiled for choice in a way. And th- it turned out that Patrick McGee's English accent, although he did his best to, t- to lose it so he could fit in with his colleagues, comrades, turned out to be, in a way, his superpower. Because after serving some time, becoming a bomb maker in, in, in Belfast in the 1970s, they decided, the IRA, to export the war as they put it, across the water. You know, one bomb in London was worth 100 in Belfast. And yet to do that operationally was much more difficult because you're, you don't have that hinterland of support. Say, you know, you can't retreat up the Falls Road if you're being chased or whatever, you, and your supply lines are more complicated. And also, if you're Irish at that time, you'd stick out like a sore thumb in England with the Belfast accent. And yet McGee, he could put on an English accent. And so he could blend in much more easily. And that made him, in IRA terms, like an excellent kind of commando. So they viewed it, like you're going behind enemy lines. And, you know, so he could blend in. And that really was why he became ultimately the Brighton bomber. Do people want a narrative of what actually happened okay. in Brighton? Yeah, would, that, so, would that be good? So <laughs> the bomb went off, huge event. Margaret Thatcher survives, of course. And then what unfolds is the biggest manhunt in UK history. I mean, who on earth did this? I mean, Guy Fawkes... They still sing songs about Guy Fawkes, right? Who blew in, over the gunpowder plot of 1605. And that bomb didn't even go off, you know? So, I mean, this was such a, a seminal event. So all of the security forces, and they're trying to find out who did it um, and how they got so close. And so much of the book is how the IRA did get so close. And that's fascinating. But in terms of then, there was this manhunt. The British eventually identify, figure out that it was Patrick McGee. And they discover that he's in Dublin, living in Ballymun, pretty openly. Um, but the British kind of smart and one level they decide to not let on they don't reveal the fact that they know it's McGee they kind of sit tight in the hope that he will come back to Britain and then they can nab him and you should be careful what you wish for because that's exactly what happened he came back after about six months after the Brighton bombing he then returned to Britain to launch a new operation so in theory this is what the Brits wanted they could get, grab him except they lost him he disappeared off the radar because he was good yeah, as an operator, he was good at what he what he did. And can, can, can I just just even going back to the operator? And I'm sorry, I keep spooling back all the time, but it's a fascinating story. And I just the actual bomb itself. I mean, Patrick McGee was an expert in the engineering department of the IRA. He was an expert bomb maker. But the crucial factor in this was a timer. Wasn't that the issue? That, you know, they were able to put it on a, on a timing device. And he installed the bomb, just for people who might know the background story, Dory, because I think it's, it's, yes, it's, that's right. it's, it's yes. crucial, mm-hmm. just, just to say that. So the Tory party conference was due to be held in October at the Grand Hotel, annual occasion, big occasion, going to be a gathering of the great and good of the British government at the time, and crucially, Margaret Thatcher. And three and a half weeks before that, Patrick McGee checked in to the Grand Hotel. Would you just give us a little bit about that? He checks in as a regular tourist. He used the, the pseudonym of Roy Walsh. And there's a whole separate story about why and the, the background to the choice of that pseudonym. And his task, he was the last link in a very elaborate chain of a plot that went back years. Um, and his job was to check in, get a room facing the seafront, not arouse any attention. And he did it. And one 
big test of his field craft was when he checked in, he had to kind of fill in the, the registration card and to do so without leaving any fingerprints on it. And that's a crucial point in, in, in the plot. And he then he spent, he spent three days and, and three nights in the, the hotel, again, three weeks prior to the Tories arriving, assembled the bomb. He hid it under in a cavity in the bath of room 629. And there it was a very, in some ways a very blunt bomb because they're putting a bomb in a hotel and the idea is you're going to try and destroy the hotel. So that's a pretty kind of horrific mass act. But there wasn't one act of incredible precision. They could time it. They cannibalized video recorders. And so they're able to time it to the minute so that they knew that basically it's before 3 a.m. and three weeks into the future when Margaret Thatcher would be in the Napoleon suite directly four stories, five stories below. And the idea was that the bomb would go off that night and unleash homicidal avalanche down from the roof of the hotel right down and hopefully entomb her and kill her. McGee disappeared. He did his job. He planted the bomb and he walked out of that hotel and nobody paid him any attention. So he was a complete success in, in, what, in, in, in that. And so once the bomb did go off um, and the manhunt began, the British had to scour through the rubble. They had no idea who had done this. And, you know, they, except after several months through fingerprints and through additional detective work, they identified that it was this Patrick McGee who was on their files as one of many IRA bomb makers. So now they're hunting him. So the story then at this point turns into a manhunt. And then I guess we want to skip ahead to the trial. They... He, McGee was then starting a new IRA campaign based in Glasgow with some IRA, a new IRA cell. And they were going to, and the, the plan was to blow up uh, British seaside resorts. And to basically the target was to destroy British, Britain's tourism industry in the summer of 1985. Uh, they were caught. And in this, in a sense, is the climax. I'm getting now to the question of the trial because the climax of the book, in a sense, is how what it was that through a whole series of astonishing events, including a surveillance operation of a different IRA man in Tyrone, led um, almost inexplicably to the, the British coming across Patrick McGee at a station in Carlisle. And then they follow him, um, and he doesn't realize he's being tailed up to Glasgow. And then there's this kind of denouement where this kind of improvised posse of Scottish detectives surround this tenement house where McGee and other IRA members are there inside preparing to launch this new campaign. And in a sense, that's the kind of the real climax of the book. I mean, it's a big moment where they, you know, it's kind of almost like a rugby squad of hulking Scottish detectives storm in and they get them. And in a sense, you know, when you see the whole journey of McGee and the police, you know, there's a real sense of like, wow, this was such a big moment. And in terms of storytelling, I thought that's, in a sense, largely where the story in, in some ways kind of ends right there. And there had to be an epilogue because the afterlives of what happened after that is absolutely fascinating. But you have to know when to end a story in a way. And I don't know, I, like Lord of the Rings, you know, if you've seen that with where, you know, I love that movie, but there's about like five endings. You know, it's like Frodo, he's sailing off and it's by Frodo and then, no, he comes back and then something else happens. Oh, now he's finished, now he's gone away. And it kind of like, Guys, you need to know when to finish the story, you know. And I thought with the trial, it was extremely rich for me as a source of information. And I used a lot of it, the information sprinkled through the narrative. But the trial itself, I felt I didn't need to, the reader didn't need to have lots on the trial. So that was why the trial itself is actually quite just a couple of pages. 
So that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. We'll be back next week with the second part of our interview with Rory Carroll. And I hope people will be looking forward to that because uh, we were very happy with the interview and we hope people like it. I would also like to say a big thank you to our producer, Cunnell O'Morine, for his assistance in putting this together. And absolutely big shout out to the great Lee Brennan, who recorded this episode and has done wonderful editing. And Peter Rice, who has done an incredible job on editing the stuff we brought back from The Electric Picnic because there was all sorts of music going on in the background. Why, why was there music at the electric picnic? I don't I, I, know. I can't believe they, uh, he's they, managed they, they to, to work wonders him. with yeah. with the recording we brought mm-hmm. back. So that's it, folks. So from me, Peter Leonard, and myself, Mark Tottenham. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon in the fifth court. The fifth court will adjourn until next week. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out. Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.